Welcome to the How to Code Well podcast, a show all about web development and programming. My name is Peter Fisher. I am a freelance web and mobile applications developer. Hello coders and welcome to another How to Code Well podcast. Today's topic is a legacy code and I have the pleasure of speaking to Anna Felina. Anna, how are you doing? Have you had a good week? Hi, yes, I had a good week. Yeah. Uh, a bit busy, lots of different priorities. What kind of priorities? Uh, just customers, meetings, um, you know, switching tasks a lot. Awesome, awesome, that sounds good. Sounds really busy. Busy, busy, busy. Busy is good. So you know a thing or two about legacy code. Yeah? Yes. <laughs> um, before we get into legacy code, though, let's talk about your background. How did you get into web development? Um, right. So my initial plan wasn't to get into web development, actually. Oh, right. So I was, yeah, I was, uh, I was a kid, I was playing video games on my PC, and I thought, you know, one day I might create my own video games. Nice. So I started with some level design with the games that provided the tooling. Eventually, I taught myself some Visual Basic because that's all I had. Mm. Um, I didn't know that it wasn't very well suited for video games, but I still tried. Mm -hmm. um, then I had a, a license for uh, Microsoft front page so it's like the one where you toggle you know you see uh, the html you you edit like the the html and then you can see yeah. the, the the underlying code i remember that i remember that you had like uh, you you could see the tree structure of all the pages and how the pages have other pages underneath and stuff yeah <laughs> uh, that i don't remember but i really remember like the html and mm. eventually going into the, the the text you know the plain text html mm -hmm and then editing the code and then seeing the results and, and thinking that I was, you know, uh, like a power user of some sort. <laughs> so that was fun. Um, eventually I actually did make uh, some games in flash. Mm -hmm. Um, even that my, uh, one of my first jobs was, uh, doing some flash games. Nice. Um, but yeah, so I had, uh, I was doing, uh, I had to put my stuff on the internet, obviously, because mm -hmm. I wanted people to see what I was building. Um, so I ended up having a fan site for a sci-fi show called um, Stargate SG-1. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty, uh, pretty cool back then in, in Canada. Pretty, a pretty good site because it was the only one that had Flash games at the time. Um, so yeah, it, it, eventually I, I fell in love with the idea of you know being able to share things with the world mm. and. Uh, just continued like that. Eventually, I discovered you know databases and PHP, yeah, um, and then other languages. So I just continued on that route. Yeah, nice. So you were just sort of like continually learning. What was the what was the um, the jump? What was it like to jump from game development to building websites? Um, was it an sort of an easy transition, or was there was there anything that you um, you preferred in game development over web development? What's the, what was your take on that? Well, websites are basically information systems and I find them easier to debug <laughs> and much easier to test. There are like fewer things happening. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to worry about uh, a lot of things in information systems. So they are easier in term, in technical terms, most of the time, 
but they are harder because then you have to work with business priorities as opposed to games where a lot of it is still creative. So you kind of have the liberty of doing things this way or that way in a website. You can't really, it has to be a certain way. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. can, you can still make decisions. You can talk to your clients and, and um, discuss, you know, how best to achieve their business goals, but you still have to keep those goals in mind. Yeah. Yeah. I do, totally dig that. And how did this tra transfer into speaking? Uh, speaking. So I always liked talking. Well, actually, that's not true. Um, when I was a kid, I was very shy. I couldn't, I couldn't talk loud enough for teachers to hear me. Um, so I had this uh, theater teacher. So we had a theater class um, in high school. And he pretty much pushed me to, to become more, I guess, to, to be more comfortable in front of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I ended up doing like a Mr. Bean sketch in front of 300 people. <laughs> <laughs> I was um, 11 or 12 at the time. Right. And um, and so I actually started to enjoy being in front of people. Mm -hmm. And I also like teaching. So every time in school there was an opportunity to make a, a presentation, like I just jumped on it. I would even... I would have made like twice as many. Sometimes I would volunteer if somebody says, well, can somebody present on this topic next week? I'm like, yes, I will be the one. Awesome. So, so I, I grew to li like it a lot um, because I also like sharing things with, with as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. Like you can see a pattern building, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You're, you're, well, producing a game. So going back to the game development, you are yeah. building something to, to share, right? And you're, you know, you're building an entertainment thing, right? So you're entertaining people through your work. Building a website is slightly different, as you said, because you're, it's, uh, it's, it's more, uh, well, it's less entertainment, more sort of, sort of almost, I don't want to say a flat structure, um, but it kind of is in that sense. And then, you know, speaking again, it's engaging, it's, it's entertaining. Um, I've seen you speak and it is entertaining. It's, it's, uh, it's both <laughs> entertaining and it's rewarding because you, you come away learning stuff. Um, I believe I saw you um, talk about uh, databases and performance. And uh, there yes. was certainly a lot of things that I took away from that. So, uh, cool. yeah, yeah. But let's let's um, talk about the talks that you you give. Is there a particular topic that you that you focus on? Um, I like to switch my topics. Like whatever is going through my mind mm. while I'm working, I, I think to myself, oh, I wish more people knew about this. And every time I think about that, I have a. a, a a place where I take that as a note, like, okay. oh, I maybe I should blog about it or make a video or, or make a talk. Right. And later I go through those and I decide what to keep, what to throw away. Um, so I have this sort of backlog of things I need to, uh, to share with people. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they vary a lot. Although more recently it has been a lot, a lot more about, you know, legacy and best practices, mm. uh, but I really like to do different things. Mm. Like I, I don't, see myself as a, a speaker focusing on, on like a, a very narrow topic. Cause I know some people talk just about testing or just about security. Um, I like to talk about all of these things sure. because for me, it's also an opportunity to learn because if you're going to say something in front of, let's say 600 people, mm. well, you don't want to make a fool of yourself. So you actually tend to research the stuff 
mm. a lot deeper than you would if you were just talking to a colleague. Yeah. Yeah. And I find this very helpful. Sometimes I would like have a sort of half idea of a talk. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to research the hell out of it. Mm. Yes. Yes. I like that. I like that. But yeah, I guess that it also helps you become more well-rounded in terms of that topic and other how that topic influences other topics um, because you're not going into such a niche. Um, yeah, I really like that. I really like that. Um, do you have any talks that you will always do is there like a talk that you go yes i'm going to do this and and you know that's my go-to talk if for instance there was something that a conference that you wanted to speak at but you didn't have a talk that would be the talk that you would choose instead i i don't think so every time i apply for a conference i go through my uh, list of talks mm. and some of the older talks i tend to not reuse because um some of those opinions or some of that research might not even be relevant anymore. Maybe there's a better That's true. Uh, way to present things. Or sometimes there are things that are I deem more important than what I used to talk about in the past. Right. Um, although there was one that I did use a lot that was database performance. I think it's one of those that I gave the most. Database performance and an introduction to unit tests. Right. Right. Um, something I did uh, many, many times. It's a very easy talk. I can just present it at any time. Mm. Well, database performance and unit testing are two subjects that just, you know, they, they won't go away. You know, you, you're, you're always going to need to to make your database more performant. Um, and you're always going to need to learn how to unit test. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And those talks are, you know, introductory talks. So you don't need to be an expert. Right. So the advice I give is rather, you know, for a wide audience mm -hmm. and I've had criticism in the past, people saying, well, this is like re really basic advice. I said, yes, but there are always new developers. So they need to hear that. Mm. Maybe you are not the target audience, mm. right? If you feel that it's too basic, mm. Um, mm. but it is, it is a very popular topic that people love. I get this on the channel, actually, there's people who will, um, suggest that I'm doing it a little bit too much, too basic in, in some, in some regards, but you're right. There is always new developers coming on and there's always that, that wanting to learn from a beginner level. Um, yeah, it's always, there, there's always this sort of toss up in my mind as to how complex I should make something and how, what, what, what stuff I can skip over because how much information should I assume that the viewer already knows? Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, doing it from a basic level, you you know, you you talk about the fundamentals and you go on from there. Yeah. Okay. So, how many talks roughly do you think you've done? Actually, I know the exact number Ooh. because at some point I decided to uh, track them all down and put them in a database and put them on my website. Oh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> with a counter, with a counter. So nice. I know that I have 77 talks I've already given and one more upcoming in uh, November. Ooh, where's that? In, uh, Bulgaria. Ooh, so it would nice. be my second time at that conference. Nice. I went uh, two or three years ago. Okay, okay. And uh, what, what are you speaking on? Uh, what am I speaking on? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, after 77, it's a bit harder to yeah. remember. Uh, let me actually, I have this on my website. Uh, conferences. Um, yeah, effortless software development. Oh, that's nice. So 
that's actually going to be a new talk right where i'm going to talk about some of the techniques um that some of them are actually covered in my uh, videos mm -hmm. on youtube cool so i'm gonna try and cover as many techniques as possible that make it a lot easier to write code You've just said something there that uh, that I should have uh, had in my notes here. Of course, I'm talking to a fellow YouTuber. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, YouTube. <laughs> I will uh, I will put your your channel in the links in the show notes below and uh, and on the end screen as well. Um, awesome. So so eff effortless is it effortless software development? You said. Uh, how does it? Yeah, effortless software development. Nice. So just like a collection of best practices that really help you, you know, create something more maintainable, um, that help you move forward much more quickly and adapt to changing requirements. Mm -hmm. It's nothing really complicated. Just you know, putting some experience together and try to present it in a coherent way. That's a, that's such an interesting talk though topic because. Um, you know, from a beginner's point of view, it isn't effortless. It's like, oh my gosh, there's all of this stuff that I need to do. And what do I do first? And all this craziness. So yeah, that's a really, really, you've, you've tapped into a really good, good uh, topic there. So yeah. you, you, you're talking more about legacy code though, that you, you said that's, that's the stuff that you're, you're, um, you're talking more on these days. Legacy code. Let's, let's, um, define that first, because when I talk to clients about legacy code or other developers, their toes curl. It's like, Ooh, this is a dirty word. He's used the legacy in front of the word code. That's, that's not good. <laughs> what is legacy code? What is, what, what is your definition of legacy code? My definition. I used to use that term more, um, liberally, basically <laughs> all code that I didn't like, I just called it legacy. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> I've been told not to do that. So I actually went ahead and, and, and checked, you know, what, how other people define it. Mm. So legacy is, and there is no um, like a unified definition, but legacy basically means something that people leave to you. Mm. Um, but those people who left it for you aren't around anymore. So like think of an inheritance, you know, like a, Somebody died and they leave you something in their will. Um, like, but when it's code, you're stuck with it and you don't have anyone to, to ask about, you know, the decisions uh, when you open the code and you see something that is strange that you don't understand. You cannot go and ask, like, was there a reason for that decision? Maybe it's historical because there was like a, another requirement that has since changed. Um, so, so legacy for me is basically something that you, inherited and that is um yeah that is you have to figure everything out on your own you, there's nobody that you can rely on to to ask some questions mm. um also um you know something that i would say requires some archaeology to understand <laughs> yeah which is yeah yeah my my uh, my middle name right <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> code archaeologist code archaeologist i like that i like that yeah there there you're right there's an element of discovery work and and uh pulling back those cobwebs and seeing what's behind those rocks um it's 
when I talk about legacy code, I, I can't help myself but get into this sort of negative sort of state though. Is, is all legacy code bad code in your opinion? Um, not necessarily. Um, I don't think that's um, code that is, you know, no longer maintained, actively maintained by the original creators mm. is any worse than code that has been shipped maybe a week ago. For example, I had a client once who came to me and said, here's a, a code that was written only five months ago. And I looked at it, it's like, well, that's worse than some of my 10-year-old code mm-hmm. that I'm maintaining. Mm. So uh, like the, the age of the code doesn't matter. Even I would argue that um, if someone, something was written really, really early on, mm. might actually be of better quality because, and, and I said this on Twitter, like every generation sort of, tries to reinvent everything. Mm -hmm. So when people started coding for the web, the very first people were developers who were coding using something else. And so they had, they brought along some best practices, Mm -hmm. but then you have like an influx of all these new people. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of them are self-taught, nothing against that. I was, I initially taught myself to code. and so they, they, they come in there and they basically reinvent everything. Nobody's writing unit tests. Nobody's understanding design patterns or are using pretty bad patterns. Right. And like right now, I finally understand certain things that I can read like in a 40-year-old book. Mm. And I'm like, well, people already knew that. How come it's not something that we knew as web developers? And so this is why I would say there is, you know, the age of the code doesn't really matter. It really depends, you know, the, the maturity of the developers who wrote them, you know, are, have they, um, have they learned, you know, those best practices? Do they pay attention to that? Because some people, they, they also don't want to, you know, pay attention to things too much. Like they cut corners. Mm. So there are so many factors and yeah. I don't think it has to do with legacy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and one can be very uh, quick to blame other people and go, oh, you know, and then, and then then taint that old developer that they have the luxury of not speaking to because they don't, they don't exist in that area, that, that company anymore. So it's very easy to blame and do it in a nasty way. Um, Mm -hmm. um, but one needs to remember what stresses and strains they were put under, what kind of constraints they had, requirements they were given, timelines that were blown yeah. 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 Well, it's a lot of fun to judge things in hindsight. It is. Yeah. You know, if, if somebody tells you, well, we have this bug that's making us lose that much money every minute, mm. you know, and so you have to fix it now. You don't have time to, um, you know, write it properly. Sometimes you just have to put a bandaid on it. Sure. So you do that. And, and with the idea that you will um, later refactor this to something, you know, more proper. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you're no longer around for some reason. And so yeah. that has left, in the, like you, you did not choose to write it in such a way. Well, you did, but you were operating at the, under a constraint. Mm-hmm. And also sometimes um, you get some requirements and then you start working with those requirements and then you realize that this is not at all the requirements that um, you expected or you had like a poor understanding of the requirements. Yeah. Um, or even the business went in a completely different direction. So there's 
lots of stuff that was left there. And mm. sometimes you think, well, it's okay. We're going to get to it later. Mm. And technical debt is not a, a bad thing either. Sometimes you have to go a bit faster in order to, to get things done. Um, yeah, I agree with that. And I don't mean cutting corners like on quality, but uh, quality such as, you know, like omitting tests. Um, that is just, you know, if you don't know how to write tests, of course, you're not going to write them. If you know how to write good tests, you will probably never ship anything without them. Um, but, you know, sometimes there are ways to structure things, you know, extract things into a service later, uh, clean things up a bit. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've been thinking about this point a, a lot. Um, it's okay to ship, in, in my opinion, it's okay to ship things that aren't necessarily of the highest code quality if you need to get it out the door straight away, if you had the every intention of refactoring it after, or um, as long as it's got tests and as long as you can prove that it works. Exactly. Um, it, so there's a part of me that is a, is a bit of a purist and it, and I like to write code in a nice clean way that is, you know, it follows all the good practices and everything and, you know, a nice shiny tick at the end of the day. But sometimes that isn't reality. Sometimes you just have mm -hmm. to get things out the door. Um, and also because you're not the only person on the team, there might right. be other people on the team who might not even know how to, how to write code the same way you do. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at, at let, let's say somebody opens a pull request and you look at that and you say, well, it works. It's rather okay. It's not how I would have written it. There are ways to make it much better, mm. but it works and the tests are, are fine. Mm. Um, we can we can improve that later or we will, you know, mentor this developer and eventually they're going to get better. Mm. Yeah, definitely agree with that. I definitely agree with that. Okay. So how does one make legacy code better? That's a bit of a loaded question I appreciate, but how, how, if you are given some, some stinking pile of code, how do you go about making that better? Well, <laughs> yeah, it is a, a big question and it, it is basically what I've been dedicating myself to in the past uh, few years. Um, so I would say writing tests is the first thing. Mm -hmm. um, because those tests will guide you to write better code. Mm -hmm. um, so if something is untestable, like that's a, that's a code smell, then you would know what needs to change. Sure. Um, you can, of course, um, to make it better, use best practices. And that is very generic term, but there are too many to list. But yeah, just follow best practices, read blogs and, and try to apply them as much as possible. So, uh, for example, one best practice, and I mean, that is still a matter of opinion for some, but um, I strongly encourage people to use dependency injection as opposed to facades mm -hmm. um, because, um, well, facades like that are auto-loaded or something um, in that sense, because when your dependencies are properly organized, it is so much easier to test things. It is so much easier to move things around. Um, things that are properly encapsulated. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that I talk about in my talk about, um, about legacy code, there's one example I really like is just split large classes um, into something smaller, just separate, you know, by concern. Um, so for example, if you have something like a, like a huge class, 
you can start by moving certain things into private methods. Sure. Um, although it doesn't, it doesn't change anything for the test. Mm. At least you have like a much shorter methods that only do one thing. Yeah. And then you can start moving those together outside of the class into a separate service. So right. I, I know we're getting a bit technical, but some people might like to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, sure. That's, that's oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I definitely get that. So if you've got like a God class, a class that is just the all encompassing class that, that does everything and, 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 any, and anything, um, then you would, you would look at that and go, Ooh, too many responsibilities. Let's split them out into mm-hmm. smaller little services and then inject them whenever, whenever they're needed, get some yeah. interfaces in place to, uh, to, to, um, create the contracts between the classes and, and, uh, and everybody is happy at the end of the day. But, um, I think you, the point that you made about testing is so important, right? Because when a developer comes on board, um, to this legacy world, they need to have some level of confidence, some confidence that the code is actually going to work. And they would probably be asked to, or have been employed to, um, to add functionality onto this legacy code. So mm-hmm. you need to have some sort of confidence that the code that you write is actually not going to interfere with anything else that that um, that someone else has written that might not even be there. Uh, so you can't call upon their help, um, and you want to make sure that your code isn't going to pollute the water down the down the river. Um, so yeah, uh, testing is so important. Testing, yeah, yeah, and and the thing is. Manual testing is can be such a waste of time and can be so unreliable. Mm. So more than once, I've seen people have very complex uh, permission matrices. So you know this, like by you have by role and by action, and then sure. you have like this giant like sixty five line thing and like twelve <laughs> columns. Yeah. And imagine testing all of these by hand. Oof. Eventually, you're just gonna start getting you know like. You, you stop paying attention really to the details and mm. you miss and you flag it as it's okay. Mm. And then what happens if you fix one? So I had a customer for, for whom I audited um, a code base. Um, I think it was about a year ago, m- maybe more. So I audited this for them. And one of the things I said, if there is any place where you would write tests, it's for that matrix. And I asked the, the the lady there, do you ever have, and, and I was spot on, I asked her, do you ever get, like, uh, somebody fixes a um, one permission and then something another permission breaks? Hmm. She says, oh, yeah, that happens all the time. How did you know? <laughs> well, <laughs> hmm. I mean, it's, it's a common pattern. And those are things that you should automate because doing it manually is just... Yeah, it's a waste of time and it's unreliable. Mm-hmm. Plus, um, testing thing ma- things manually means that you have to train the person on how to go about testing. Mm-hmm. And once they finish testing, all you have is their word. This I mean, is true. Not that you shouldn't trust people, but I trust uh, a lot more a test that if I audited the test itself, so mm-hmm. when you review the code, you see, Mm. okay, the test is written in a coherent way. We know that it's actually testing something. Mm -hmm. And then you go ahead and and run those tests. Now I can trust the the numbers that I see. If it says that everything passes, or if one thing is is red, I go and fix that. Now this one is green and the other one is red. I can trust my test suite. And it's just, 
seconds as opposed to hours every time. And the thing is, you usually test what you changed, not everything else. Mm. Yes. But I'm just I'm just repeating the common arguments for tests. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, I, I I definitely agree with that. I I like the you said the word test a lot. Uh, a trust there a lot, and I um I'm digging that that trust in your code. That's uh because I because I, I usually see it as confidence. You know, you're growing confidence in in someone else's code at the end of the day. Um, but but um, it there is a there is a strong level of trust. Um, to that, that you get from 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 testing, because you can't, you know, if someone gives you legacy code and and you know it works, as in it's in production, as in people are using it and buying things off of the website and all that stuff, you know it works, but you don't know it works in the sense that you don't know how it works. So you're gaining a level of trust with that. Um, so yeah, yeah, I totally get that. Um, Okay, so what are the what are the most common mistakes that you see with with legacy code? Uh, be it <laughs> legacy or any code, I I see <laughs> many mistakes, and people shouldn't feel bad about making mistakes because yeah, I I realized that I made mistakes like a month ago, right? Like sure. a month ago, I made a mistake. I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have done it this way. I should have done it some other way. And then I would have avoided a lot of trouble for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot pinpoint like the most common ones, but the ones that I've had to deal with more recently that prompted me to tweet or blog. <laughs> <laughs> so I know it's important enough for me. It's um, code duplication is a very common problem. And I don't mean just like copying a file and modifying just a few lines. That's also a problem. Mm. But like, let's say you have multiple reports and all of these reports need queries to to load the content and show there. Mm -hmm. And some of these are loading the same things, but all of those queries are separate to each their own. And so you are repeating a lot of that code. Mm. But then if you change in one place, if you change something in how your data is structured now, or you change some business rule. Now you go and update one query, but you forget another. So now your all of your reports are showing something different. Sure. You can have five reports and all of them are not sorting, filtering things correctly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, or the same way. Maybe one of them is correct, but you don't know which one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, actually related to that, um, to the database is, you know, not enforcing um, foreign keys. So, if foreign keys and other constraints in the database, like things can be nullable. Um, the, the people just, you know, allow anything to go into the database. Uh, sometimes uh, it's not often, but when it happens, it's, it's really annoying because then you can have things like orphans. Mm-hmm. Uh, something deletes a, a record, but it doesn't delete the other record. Mm-hmm. And now you, when you have an inner join, that leads to some unexpected behavior. That's quite annoying. Yeah. Uh, one of my customers recently had a problem like that, which actually cost him money right. because there were, there were uh, accounts that he should have closed, but he didn't know that he needed to close them, which means that the third party charged him for that yeah. um, for every open account. But if he's not charging his client for that, mm-hmm. then that doesn't work. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, he's paying for something that he's not using, mm-hmm. but his report showed nothing. Because right. there were orphans, yeah, because they didn't show up 
using the inner join. Wow. And so, yeah, things like that can, can cost a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Knowles, I already blogged about that's like the null hell and how to get out of it. <laughs> um, so you can go to my blog and find that. Null hell. Um, <laughs> null hell. Yeah. Just everything is null. And then you have to double check because you can get null pointer exception. So you just keep like every method you receive something like, is it null? Are you sure? Yeah. And then right. like, in the next, you pass it directly to another method, but that method still doesn't know where this data comes from. Mm. It cannot trust this. So is it null? And if you forget in one place, you get a null pointer exception in some of the most hilarious ways. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, with I say thing, hilarious sarcastically, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I bet that I bet your client didn't find it hilarious when he was paying the invoices. No. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, when you're when you're working with databases, right? You're you're you are um, you're you're creating an object layer that represents the the records. So they have yeah. to be typed in some sort of manner. And so if the data is null and it expects it not to be null, you know, the code, uh, then you yeah. have all sorts of issues. Um, yeah, I've, yeah. Play, I've played that game before. It's <laughs> and, and actually, I would say that the, the most common, um, actually has a name, the most common mistake I would say is, yeah. it's called the banana monkey jungle uh, problem. <laughs> you know, so, that? okay, so like the jungle has a monkey, the monkey has a banana, right? Right. So when you try, when you need Mm-hmm. let's say you need an object right. but that object needs uh, a certain context to be set somewhere you know because if it's not set somewhere in some globals or, or some service locator or whatever mm-hmm. if it's not set then it cannot be instantiated so now you have to go and instantiate those things there uh, but those things pull on something else so basically you just pull on that thread and you end up having the entire jungle where all you need is just a banana yeah so i don't know if it's the best way to explain it but that's awesome um, i've never heard of that basically before. um yeah i discovered it actually just a, just a few months ago and i thought it was a really cool um a, a cool way to explain it that were a, a cool term yeah and Basically, you pull up, you end up pulling the entire application when you want to instantiate something. Mm. And that causes problems because there's no isolation. There's um, the application becomes untestable, which means that you cannot write any pure unit tests. You have to sort of have a mechanism to bootstrap all those things. Mm. And that's for every single case. So that makes um, your tests, you know, hard to maintain because it just pulls on so many things. Uh, you cannot, basically you depend on the entire application to be in a certain state mm. or yeah. a, an individual class to work. You yeah. cannot mock anything. And, um, it also causes you to have very slow tests that you tend to run less often. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, I've never heard of that term before, but uh, I will use that in, uh, in in meetings. I think. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> That's that awesome. That is awesome. Banana and jungle and monkey, awesome. So, do you prefer to work on legacy code over new code? Definitely legacy. You d- definitely prefer working on legacy. Yes. Yeah. Can can I? I, I know I'm weird. I, I'm the kind of person. <laughs> I like writing documentation. I like writing tests. I like working with old codes as opposed to new codes. I like um, everything the contrary of what most people 
are, I think. Um, well, you 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 uh, used the phrase archaeologist uh, at the start of this podcast, and I think that that and being an archaeologist, I can't say it, archaeologist, uh, you need to have some, a different sort of mindset, a different, you need to get into some sort of different zone, some different rhythm to actually discover these things and, and uh, pull out all of these, these holes. You're also, when you're dealing with legacy code, you're, you're also working on um, performance optimization. You're, you're helping people save money. So you're not necessary. you're not, it's not like you're working on new shiny new features. It's like working on something that is currently in play and you're making it and improving it and, uh, and building upon it. Um, so I can appreciate the, the, the desire of working on legacy code. Yeah. Is There's the, just more challenge there. I yeah, find. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. You have to, you have to go down into the details. You have to be more methodical. Hmm. Mm. Well, at least that's that's how I feel. But then I haven't worked on new code in years. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess um, because there's because the code is in production, and I guess because people are using it, it could be a payment thing. So there could be a financial thing attached to it. There is always this this uh, this fear that you know, of screwing it up. Whereas when you're working on a new project, completely fresh out of the box, you know, box fresh project, there isn't any of that up front. And there's actually a huge amount of development time before anything actually gets pushed to the public. Um, yeah, but that risk the, is what makes it more rewarding. Ah, yes. <laughs> there are many risks that I do not take. I'm not like a big risk taker, but well, and I say that maybe that's not even true. But um, I really like that that thrill, like mm. like I could screw it all up, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that that's uh, it's 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 a very brave um, position to be in. Uh, yes, <laughs> it feels like you know, like this superpower. Like I'm not going to screw it up, but sure. then yeah, it, it happens. Like it happens to me to make mistakes. And that also teaches you some people skills because then you have to explain, you know, well, it is a mistake. It is what it is. Um, I'm also the best person to fix it now. So sure. let's uh, let's continue. So that actually um, teaches you how to, you know, establish trust and report and um, how to talk to people, you know, under pressure. Wow. Yes. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Talking to people under pressure. Uh, and I guess also with legacy code, that's also coupled with, le with, with legacy business decisions. So not only are yes. you having to discover the technical side of it and, and, uh, and ask the, the questions of why is it being written in such a way, but you're also having to ask the business, you know, how did you get to this point? What was the business decisions that were that uh, and then you get sort of a, a an interesting sort of um appreciation for the business i would imagine where yeah 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 uh, but uh, i mean i i try not to dwell on the historical decisions okay i rather ask you know where do you want to be now mm. uh, and if somebody says well i need to do it like this like this like this which is often historical and i ask well do you actually need that um, is that something that can be fixed? You know, do you need to, for the system to send you an email with some code that you can then go and, and search for it on some reports? Like, 
do you want me to just automate that for you or something you know right yes there is like that yes definitely because there's um because if you're if you go into a place and you see that there's a team of people and they're doing something that is repetitive and they're they're doing it like every day and it's actually taking them several hours to do then you could actually be saving them an awful lot of time and money and resources yeah Yeah. Yeah. haven't thought of it like that but the opposite is also true because you have to make sure that you don't automate things for the sake of automating them because automating certain things is more costly than it would be to deal with them manually. So, for example, um, handling certain exceptions. Mm. Um, like, mm. well, if this is going to happen, so I worked for uh, for an insurance company um, about a year ago, and they said, well, this kind of uh, scenario would happen um, five times a year. Right. We're like, okay, so we're not going to automate this. We're just going to flag it and then you decide what you want to do with it, go into the right systems and, and resolve it manually because it's really easier because also if we don't account for all the possible scenarios, mm-hmm. then they're still going to have to do things manually. But now it's more confusing mm. because you have two ways of doing things like the system does this, but not that. Um, let's just leave it. You know, it's it's a big organization with... Um, some 50,000 employees. So you know what? I mean, they can they can do five of those little operations per year. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so it's like their workarounds in that sense, you know? Yeah. 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 So, so work, like we shouldn't be afraid of workarounds either because sometimes they're so cheap. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very interesting point. Uh, yeah. I haven't thought of it like that from a, from a, from, from, uh, you know, a, a programmer's perspective from, from someone who is just looking at programming and not looking at the business, you can quite easily want to build as many solutions as possible for, for as m- many large and small problems. Um, yeah. in fact, I do feel that we can be quite, um, magnetized to finding problems, even if they don't exist, um, <laughs> yes. and writing solutions I, for them. I'm guilty of that as well. <laughs> okay, so we've spoken a little bit about this, but what excites you the most when um, working on legacy code? Oh, the most exciting thing is mm. um, criticizing people's work in hindsight. No. <laughs> 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 no um, what, what's really said? Well, I, I did mention that I like, you know, the, the challenge of it. Mm. Um, I I feel like not too many people can do it, not just from a technical standpoint, but also from a psychological standpoint. Right. Like you have to like have an appreciation for it. You have mm-hmm. to like doing that kind of work. And most people don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, I did meet several people who are into legacy as much as I am. And we just geek out like crazy when, when we meet. Um, but I, I feel like not too many people can do it. And that kind of makes me feel unique. Mm. It's like strokes my ego. Um, also I like fixing things in general. Like I, I don't like throwing away and getting a new thing. For example, right. my, my phone, uh, 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 call when I want to, mm-hmm. um, I'm not going to change it. Right, uh, right. Um, what else? Um, I will, for example, when I when I moved into this house, 
um, the, the yard was in a sad state, like there were weeds everywhere. And another person might just change the whole thing, you know, like just rip it out and just put some new grass there. Mm-hmm. But no, I go and I just grab those weeds one by one, like an hour at a time, like I give an hour here, an hour there, and eventually it's gone. So I have that kind of patience and, and makes me feel good. Makes me feel good. And also I don't need to keep up with the latest, you know, JavaScript frameworks and stuff because I'm working with, you know, I, I just need to move from PHP five to seven. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. I like that. Yeah. Well, I, I don't work in just PHP too. Like I, I was working on a legacy project in C sharp recently. Mm-hmm. Um, also before that, some Ruby um, and actually, you know, all the mistakes I pointed out, they're all the same across mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, Here's a here's a bit of a question. Uh, you you made the point of of having patience, and I think that's a very good trait to have when you're dealing with legacy code. Is there any other non technical skills one needs to have in order to be good at working on legacy code? Hmm. Never thought about that. I guess being able to talk to people and prioritize um, to be able to explain the value. Mm. of certain things um, because you know although you're not supposed to have to justify that you're going to write acceptance tests for example um, some people might still ask the question and you should be able to say well it's going to take a, a bit longer to get started because I need to you know prepare the terrain a bit I need to write some tests sure. um, so you have to be able to explain why it is important and why it is worth taking the time to do that up front Mm. Instead of just diving in and because somebody might call you and say, well, we have this, this problem, uh, a number of problems we need to fix. Can you, can you fix it? And so they expect something after day one, but day one, two, three, I'm still writing tests. Yeah. So gosh, that, that is a really interesting point. Something that I wouldn't mind just picking up on a little bit. Um, yeah, it's the, because you have to spend time discovering what is there, what works and what doesn't work. And the client would just see the website and they could click through it and it works, you know, they, cause they, that's them visually seeing it works, visually testing it, as we mentioned before. How do you, how do you translate this sort of requirement of, because it all boils down to time, essentially, how long is it yeah. going to take you? What are, what are the steps that you take in order to um, audit the, the, the code base? Oh, the steps to audit the code mm, base. Mm. Um, I just, I don't know. I just read through it. Right. <laughs> um, what, what exactly is the question though? What, what sorry. Are you um, for? So, sorry. Yeah. I was kind of going off in my head as to, as to this. So, um, how do you, how do you tackle the problem? First of all, how do you, if someone gave you legacy code, um, and, and with okay. the, with the requirement of, I want you to add, a new page that has this piece of Ajax or something crazy, um, pulling in this data from some place. How do you, how do you in yourself make the code? uh, How, how am I going to put this? How do you audit the code in a way that makes you feel comfortable to actually work upon it? Um, well, I just yeah, I create myself a safety net by writing the necessary tests. Right. Um, usually, if the code is not 
too bad. Like if I open it up and I see that I can deal with it, I try to find where I would need to make the change. Right. And if if I see that it requires some refactoring, then I will probably write an acceptance test. Well, I'll probably write an acceptance test anyway, mm. um, just to make sure that I know where I'm starting. Um, mm. And then when I add a new feature, I'm going to just add a new scenario. Right. Um, yeah. And I mean, I guess that 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 should just slot in and snap together and, and work as expected. How though do you go from ah, this is actually going to take me to, from that to, ah, this is actually going to take me a long time because there's all of this mess under the, under the hood here. How do you explain that to, to the client? Is there any kind of, um, Mm. how do you go from a technical problem to a non-technical person in a, in a, and explain that you're going to need more time? How, how do you go about that? Um, well, first of all, we shouldn't be afraid, I guess, to to say that it's going to take more time. Um, uh, the thing is, I cannot even often accurately estimate how much time it's going to take. But I explain to them that unless I, I put some, some safeguards in place, mm. I cannot guarantee that by fixing this, I will not break something else. Right. Well, that's interesting. That's, that's so good. So I tell them, well... Because now they know what their problem is that they're trying to solve. Sure. If I don't do it properly, if mm-hmm. I don't take the time to do it properly, um, mm. they're going to end up with another problem that they don't know about right. and that they will discover through their customers. Yeah. And then they need to understand the problem again. So it's yeah. actually more work for them. It's a little embarrassing maybe for the customers. Maybe they, they would even lose some money. So I would say, well, this is going to take a, uh, take a moment. Yeah. Okay. Well, this yeah. is going to take a little longer. So, you're- so yeah, just, just be, be, be honest, I guess. Be honest and um, explain things in terms of uh, business value and in terms of consequences from their point of view. Excellently put. And, and that yeah. comes with practice. It's not something you can really teach. Yeah. Like as you explain to people, like you, you also see mm-hmm. uh, eventually the consequences from the customer's perspective mm-hmm. or, or from, from your employer's perspective. Mm-hmm. Once you see that, um, you can use that as an example next time. Wonderful. Yeah, that's uh, elegantly put there. That was really good. Um, yes, yeah, so you're covering yourself your basis, you've said you put in a safety net, you're explaining to the, to the client about business risk. Um, yes. Uh, and don't be afraid because it, yeah, it's like, it's not like, you know, suddenly this is a, a race to get this, this feature out. You know, if you, if you don't feel comfortable in, in, in the legacy code that you've been given, and if you're not confident that the code that you write, isn't going to break something else, then you should raise that as a, as a warning. Yeah. Yeah. I think everybody can can learn to say no. No where it's going to take more time. Yeah. Now like, oh, can you can you fix it like I have a I have a I don't know. A customer would come to me and say, "Well, I have that much budget and I want to accomplish this." And I say, "Well, no." Right? It's it's not it's not feasible. Somebody else might say yes, uh, but they're not going to get the result that they expect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally get that. That was a, yeah, excellent answer. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> a, a really good answer to a very off the wall question. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Uh, 
So before we wrap up, um, is there anything else that you wish to add uh, about legacy code? But legacy code, I think we pretty much covered it yeah. all. Cool. Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no write worries. more tests. Write, write more, more tests. tests. Write more tests. Yes. That's yeah. all I can say. Yeah. Cool. Now there's a question that I ask uh, each guest um, and uh, you can answer it in an, any kind of direction you want uh, as, as all of these questions. Um, and that is, if you could talk to your former self, what advice would you give? And it could be more than one. My former self. Mm. So how, how many years ago would that be? Like 20 years ago is Ooh, fine. I tell you what, let's, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, how about when you were just deciding to, to go into web development? Okay. So yeah, that's, that's about 20 years ago. Um, yeah, 20 years ago, I would say read more books. Although at the time I didn't have money to buy them myself. Um, read more books. Um, ask for recommendations. Um, so I would often look at a book and say, hey, maybe that's, that's something that will teach me lots of interesting things, but maybe that's not the book I should have been reading. Mm. Um, so just read more books. Um, also listen to others. And that's, um, that's a bit later by the time I got into uh, Twitter. You know, like now we have this opportunity to, you know, listen to other people and, and mm. you know, find their blog mm. posts and not not think that we have all the answers basically uh, yeah yeah when i was you know a kid i was full of myself and uh, um i haven't listened to people as much like i didn't trust their advice as much mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um yeah um what else i would have told to myself you know to read a book about testing yeah. <laughs> Because I didn't get into testing until much later because I started so early. Like I, I taught myself right. and we didn't even cover automated tests uh, when I was studying for computer science. Sure. So I discovered it much later in my career and mm. I wish I discovered this earlier. Yeah. Um, so we had this, uh, we had this teacher in school. I remember he talked, uh, he told us not to assume things, but that is such a broad thing to say. It's like, telling a kid, uh, you know, be nice. Like, <laughs> what does that even mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like they don't know what they don't know. And what is an assumption? Am I making an assumption? Mm -hmm. So, um, I would have told me, uh, told to myself, you know, try and, uh, learn, like think about your, uh, analyze your thought process and learn to spot your assumptions. What is an assumption? Um, so what's caused you problems now track back to the assumption that caused it and in the future, try to avoid those assumptions. Um, and another thing, um, I would say when you are on a call, so speaking of assumptions, when you're on a call with someone or in a meeting, mm. you discuss things and sometimes you're not going to take notes because you're like in this very passionate discussion, but taking notes is important because then, uh, you go back into your corner and you start working and you realize that you don't actually know. So by the end of the meeting, you feel like you have all this information, mm. but then you find out that either you forget pieces or you realize that you don't actually know as much as you thought you did. Mm. So just take notes in meetings. Awesome. Yeah. That's some really good advice there. Some nice solid advice. And I like the assumptions part because I guess when you're working with legacy code, 
if you don't write the tests, you are making an assumption that it works. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but there are also so many other assumptions that you make. For example, I even more recently, I don't say I'm immune to making assumptions, but more recently I am uh, assumed about how some e-wallet solution was working. Mm. And it actually bit me because I was so sure that it worked like every other thing that I, I, I used in the past, uh, I don't know how many years, in the past 15 years. But actually, um, it wasn't uh, at all like that. And I discovered something new. Mm -hmm. But I designed the system around this assumption and all of it was completely false. And we, had to, we had to go back to the drawing board. Mm -hmm. And which is why also I like um, to take notes um, to make sure that people can challenge me. So mm -hmm. like, you know how you're doing some research, you know, you need to figure out how you're going to design this. You do some research, you read up about how this API works, things like that. Mm -hmm. And you, dis you, you draw a conclusion about how it works. Yep. But yep. It, the conclusion is what you give to your colleagues, for example. Mm -hmm. But what I started doing more recently is writing down um, the information that leads me to this conclusion. So here's what I found out. Mm -hmm. And here's the web page where I found it. Here is the actual sentence. Mm -hmm. So people can go through my notes and um, double check and see whether the uh, proof that I gave in my notes, like uh, the reference that I gave, um, is uh, allows you to safely reach that conclusion. And they might say, well, this doesn't really prove what you're saying. Let's, uh, before we move, uh, before we proceed further, let's mm. go back to that and analyze it some more together. Mm. So they can challenge my decisions or conclusions mm. by looking through the process. So I'm documenting the process. That's, that's, uh, yeah, that's really cool. You're, you're essentially just, you're, you're creating a way to justify the, the conclusion. Um, yeah. Basically yeah. you do proper research yeah. with, you know, the, the, uh, the proof. Yeah. Cool. Huh. Okay. And it doesn't take that much more effort actually. And it's also good for you because then if you forget something, you can see where it was and find more details. Of course you're, you're kind of building a sort of an index, um, of all of these things that you're, that you've been looking at and discovering. Um, yeah. 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 Super cool. Super cool. So how can, how can people get in touch? How do people follow you? What's your Twitter handle and all that jazz? Uh, so Twitter is my name, Aphelina. Aphelina. Um, yeah. Anna Felina on YouTube. Um, what else? Um, I have a blog on aphelina.com. So there's a pattern you see. Yeah. Um, my email address is on my website. Cool. And if people just want to ask a question or reach out, um, uh, my Twitter actually has uh, direct messages that are open for everyone. Cool. So even if I don't follow them, they can they can uh, ask a question and get in touch with me. Wonderful. Wonderful. I'll leave all of those links in the show notes below. Um, thank you ever so much, Anna, for coming on. I uh, appreciate your time. I, I appreciate it as well. It was, uh, it was a fun conversation. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Go and follow Anna and also subscribe to her channel. I'll put links in the, in the, there'll probably be a link on the page somewhere. <laughs> And thank you ever so much, everyone, for watching on the YouTubes and following on the podcast or listening on the podcast, I should say. Thanks very much. Happy coding, everyone. Have a good day and I'll see you again soon. Cheers. Bye. Bye.